Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Brian Foy. Based in New York, Brian is a consultant and trainer and a prolific author and co-author of books and articles about the Perl programming language. You can follow him on Twitter at BrianDFoy underscore Perl, that's P-E-R-L, and check out his website at BrianDFoy.github.io. Brian is the author of the LeanPub book, Perl New Features, The Evolution of Perl from version 5.10 to now. In the book, you can read about new features, deprecations, and other changes to the Perl programming language since since version 5.8 to version 5.32, all from the Effective Perler blog, which we'll link to in the description. In this interview, we're going to talk about Brian's background and career, professional interests, uh, Perl, and at the end, we'll talk about his uh, extensive experience as a writer and book author. So thank you very much, Brian, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Yes, thank you, Lynn. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, the somewhat circuitous path you took to the world of sort of a career in programming and book writing. Sure, I'll, I'll try to give you the highlights. Uh, so I'm from California, I'm from Southern California, and I tried to get as far away from there as possible during my college years. And so I went to Humboldt State University, which is way up in the north. So for those of you who don't know the sort of the geography of the U.S. West Coast, that's about a 14-hour drive. Uh, so I could still be in-state for in-state tuition, but I'm as far away from where I grew up as possible. Uh, there I was in the sciences. I studied chemistry and physics. I have degrees in both. And I uh, actually tried to get a third in mathematics because I was uh, doing a lot of math courses too, and they said, hey, two's enough. Why don't you leave? Um one of the interesting things, uh, you know, I was going to school on the GI Bill, so uh, as long as you were taking a full load, you get your money. So in the summer, I wanted to keep getting the checks, and so that's why I had so many classes available to me. Um, from there, I moved out to the East Coast thinking I was going to do something in the big city, uh, keep studying physics. Uh, did some low-energy nuclear physics stuff for a while, thought I would end up as a college professor. Um, but what really happened is I ended up doing a lot more technology because that's really what that sort of science is, is you, you do some sort of physical experiment for a week at some place that gives you time on their giant piece of equipment. And then you spend the rest of the time trying to get that data into some sort of plot that you can convince someone to publish. Uh, as the more I did programming to make that sort of stuff happen, the more I was getting offers to do programming for other people. Um, I had been on uh, this thing called Usenet that the kids can Google to find out what that thing was, but it was sort of one of the original uh, social medias, if you want to think about it like that, where people would post very long form sometimes uh, things and, and have these long discussions about various things. And I was quite active on there. I mean, that's how I was learning programming is we had this, this, you know, this information superhighway, as we used to call it, where you could just talk to people no matter where they were. And that was a great, as I was sitting in my office doing nothing, watching computers blink on and off, uh, learning programming. Uh, from there, I, I caught the attention of Randall Schwartz. Uh, you may have heard his name in Perl from uh, Programming Perl, Learning Perl. Uh, one of his books was called Perl, References, Objects, and Modules, which became Intermediate Perl. Uh, he ran a company called, he still runs a company called Stonehenge Consulting. Uh, this was in like the middle 90s, and he was running something like, you know, six to 10 Perl trainings, week-long Perl trainings a month with four instructors. He, he couldn't get enough instructors to do all the trainings he needed to do. Everyone seemed to be doing Perl. 
And I happened to be having drinks with him one night in a in a bar in Lower Manhattan, and he asked me, "Hey, uh, you want to come teach for me?" And I said, "Oh, okay, yeah, I'll try that. I'll try anything." Uh, from that, I got into the teaching business. We we taught mostly Perl, but some other technology subjects as well. We went all over the country doing that, and sometimes internationally. You know, and that lasted for a few years, and. It got to the point where we needed to update our books, uh, and these are our O'Reilly books, the nutshell books that, that people refer to by the animals, you know, Learning Pearl, the Llama book, uh, uh, was now Intermediate Pearl, the, the alpaca book, then the, the big one, uh, Programming Pearl, the camel book. And I got tasked with that as part of uh, Stonehenge Consulting, and so that's how my name starts to show up on the books, and I just kept doing that over and over again uh, and i think learning pearl now is at the eighth edition intermediate pearl is the second edition programming pearl is the fourth edition um that one uh really thanks to tom christensen and i just sort of helped shepherd him through the process um and along the way i somehow got onto this track of being an author which i had never really planned to do i mean again i was coming from academia and government work where i thought i would be working in some national lab or teaching in some college. Uh, I guess there you could write books too, but it wasn't on my radar at all. It just sort of happened. Um, and these books were popular and people liked them and went to a lot of conferences and talked about them and that sort of stuff. Uh, but then as you know, it being a publisher yourself really, is the landscape really changed when when the ebooks came in. People stopped buying uh, the paper books. Uh, and there's lots of explanations for that, but I mean, imagine as a programmer going into like a Barnes and Noble or any sort of trade bookstore, uh, there would be like half of a floor dedicated to programming books. You would see the entire O'Reilly catalog in its own section, and that's the book that you would buy. And then there'd be all the other uh, imprints and whatnot. And now I'm I'm lucky if you, I'm lucky if I find like one shelf of programming books in any bookstore. Uh, and just uh, as a note, if I ever find one of my books on a shelf somewhere, I sign it and put it back on the shelf so people will get lucky, maybe, and and find one of my books defaced already. Um, so, and I was doing that. And I was having a lot of fun doing that. I kept doing all the Pearl stuff. I've done a lot of things in Pearl. Uh, I started a Pearl user group along with uh, a few other people the New York Pearl Mongers. And then we turned that into, I think, 200 groups the next year, basically by just setting up a table at a conference and having sign-up sheets. I mean, very low tech, no web forms, no sign into this. Just, hey, if you're in, in Stockholm, put your name on this piece of paper over here. If you're in uh, uh, London, put your name over here. And then we took those sheets and found someone from one of those cities and said, here, here's this piece of paper. When you go back, contact these people and go out and have drinks. Uh, and that was amazingly successful. And mostly because it was very casual. We did not put any sort of pressure on them to do anything in any sort of way or stick to any sort of brand identity or anything. We just wanted to connect people. Um, one of the most successful things that any young person can do getting into any sort of field is just make a lot of friends. You might not find them immediately useful, but later on you will. And so I did that at the beginning of my career in Pearl, really, uh, and that's really paid off. Um, I'll skip a bunch of other stuff. I mean, I've, I've been doing this 
geez, almost 30 years now with Pearl. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing all those really great highlights. That's really great. One thing I wanted to talk, talk about that you talked about at the end there, that's like, because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are sometimes sort of starting out their career in, in software or just, you know, getting interested in it. And like, I would love to sort of see some kind of psychoanalytic analysis of like why there's this myth that the programmer is this lone wolf who, you know, doesn't talk to people and stuff like that. Uh, when the actual reality of it is that so much of it is, it might not be face-to-face, -face, but so much of it is communal and cooperative and finding groups and finding other people and things like that. And it's been like that since the since the beginning. Um, and particularly, as you say, though, but this it applies to any career, make friends in that, make friends in that field, particularly for mentors, if you can, stuff like that, like th th that in particular, and people want, people will want to help you. And if they don't, who cares? move on to the next person because uh, uh, there are people who will want to help you and will have great advice and introductions to make and, and things like that. Yeah, I would. one of the interesting things about that is if you just went off of what you see on the internet, social media, whatever, that's like maybe 10% of the activity of the world. Like I deal with so many people who have no social media presence whatsoever. They're excellent programmers, but you would never find anything about them on the internet for you know whatever reason. They don't there's just not their thing. They want to protect their family or whatever it is. And there's an amazing amount they could contribute, but for whatever reason, um, they're so in Pearl, we call it a dark pan. Like we have the, the comprehensive Pearl archive network. And then there's this dark Pearl archive network of just yeah. stuff that sort of floats around and it's not organized or cataloged. Um, which reminds me of the story of Richard Feynman, this great physicist who, who, uh, and I don't know how apocryphal this is, but it sounds like Feynman. That, you know, people would come into his office and try to explain some problem they were working on, and he would go to his file cabinet and pull out some folder and say, oh, I, I have the solution right here. And he had never told anybody, you know, he, he did it at night or something, filed it away, and moved on in life. I'm... That's yeah, the internet... story of, of calculus, too, isn't it? Um, uh... Oh, well, like Leibniz and, and Newton? No, like, yeah, that Newton, Newton was sort of like, he was in... He was in his offices, and we're sort of totally digressing here, but it is interesting to think about these things. So my understanding of that story is that Newton was in, like, his offices in Cambridge or something like that, and someone came up and, like, had a certain kind of problem that he didn't have a, a mathematical way of solving, and Leibniz is like, oh, or, I'm sorry, Newton is like, oh, no, no, I solved that years ago, um, <laughs> and then pulls out, yeah, I think he had to, I think he had to go, like, it was some kind of, like, he had to go back to his, like, like, country house to kind of find the papers or something like that. Anyway, it's it's very interesting how those things you know, it, happen. It's interesting to think about Newton having an office because my entire conception of him is sitting under a tree. Like, I, I don't picture him being inside at all, just, you know, because of the famous story. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that, that sort of leads to another thing that I often talk about, and I write about this in my book, Mastering Pearl. Uh, there's a, a way we do things now that are completely medieval in the sense that uh, sitting and listening to someone in a lecture is is like that because people used to not be able to read. And so the only way they had to transmit information was orally. So you would go to a lecture and someone would read the book to you. Like literally they'd read the book because you didn't know how to read and you would have to memorize that somehow. So all this like rote memorization we have instead of just looking something up. And I, I know we're really digressing here and we'll get back to your questions in a minute, but 
But I see that happening again with YouTube videos. Like people want YouTube videos of things. They don't want to go get a book and read it. Uh, and I know it's just a yeah, interesting you know, parallel I see. Yeah, no, that actually you just gave me, gave me a great sort of podcast guest uh, gift of a, an awesome segue. So one of the one of the questions that's come up many times on this podcast because so many of the authors are programmers and from various generations, right? Like a, a, your experience of becoming a programmer and learning, like you would learn on Usenet and stuff like that. A lot of people, it's kind of like they typing out from a magazine, things like that. Um, uh, but one of the questions that comes up is if you were starting out in, a, in your in a career that was going to be like yours turned out to be, if you were starting out now, would you get a four-year full computer science degree at university? Um, and I'm, that, that, that leads me to actually ask a question uh, first, though. Uh, so you, pardon the naive Canadian question, but like you said, you went to university on the GI Bill to study physics. Does that mean you served in the military before then? Yeah, yeah. I was in the Army okay. for a long, long time. Um, you know, nothing particularly fantastic there. Nothing connected with technology. Okay. But, but you know, I was poor, and the army was a way out of that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. It's it's really interesting because I, I one one thing I want to know is like, does that still exist? Like, if you if you spend some time in the army now in the United States, can you get your tuition paid? I have not looked at what has happened since like around like two thousand eight. I think they changed it so. You know, there was a GI Bill right after World War II. So we had this great influx of people into universities that would have never been able to, to go before. And then, and so that was the GI Bill. And then there were a few more iterations as Congress updated the terms of who was eligible and this, you know, the specifics of uh, whatever the program was. I think, I don't remember the name of the GI Bill I went under. I think it was a Montgomery GI Bill. And then before I, I left the military, they had even had another one, but you know, I'd already used my benefits. So the people coming out of, uh, you know, the various conflicts after nine 11 had a different program, but it was basically the same. You go to college, you, you get a, a stipend and some money and it. It's actually pretty decent if you can live simply and, and people in the military are, are pretty used to living simply. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, the the living simply is an important thing. I think uh, one of the, one of the sort of like things you go through as a student, but um, also, but uh, you know, the the one particularly with when I have American guests and I ask them that question about would you do it now? Would you do a full computer science degree now? Tuition comes up, and it's like it's it can be so high that like it really changes the calculation for a lot of people. Yeah, and I don't even know if. Well, okay, so there's a few ways you can go with the question, right? Like, if I know everything I have now and can go back and do it over, how would I rearrange it? Or what advice would I give to other people? Um, I don't know if I would do computer science at all for to be a programmer. So, you know, I did physics, and physics is one thing. Physics is, is nice, and I enjoy it, but it's not engineering, which is quite a bit different. So in grad school, I was asked to design this contraption that would probably weigh about three tons and haul all sorts of stuff. And, and I just flat out said, no, I'm not doing this. I don't have any background in materials or or civil engineering or or, or anything that would make this thing safe. Um, and look at what we have had in the news recently, the, this Ocean Gate submarine that seemed to take a bunch of people who didn't say no. And I don't really know anything about that, so I, I'm not going to go on about that, but... But there are people who think because 
they can move some numbers around like you would do in physics that you can now translate that into the real world. This isn't a knock on computer science. It's a, it's a particular field of study that I don't think is the same thing as software engineering. The best people I have seen in programming have not done computer science. They have done something else. And the reason they succeeded in computer science is because they just like learning new things or conscientious or, or some other trait. Um, the great thing with books is that you can read about everything you need to. And the great thing about computer books is that you can read just about everything you need to. And that with the internet, you can ask your questions just about anywhere you need to. Um, I had this, this exchange with my advisor in grad school, you know, I, so in college, I really wanted to be a sea otter biologist. So I come from California and there's, there's this marine mammal called a sea otter and it floats around and it ties itself up in kelp so it doesn't float away and it grabs things off the bottom of the ocean and then cracks open with rocks. It's one of the animals that we know that uses tools. Well, you know, everyone wants to be a sea otter biologist. If you go to Monterey Bay Aquarium, which has a, a rescue program, there's a line of people like 15 years long. And I mean, I think that's the actual number because I asked one of them um, to volunteer to do this job. Uh, so there's, you know, I realized that there's going to be no money in this in, when I was in uh, school. And so I, sw I was already taking a bunch of chemistry classes. And so I just kept going with that. And then I ended up taking a bunch of physics classes. Uh and, you know, I ended up somewhere completely different. So, yeah, no, um, it's, yeah, no, that's that. And, and actually uh, one particular thing I know from your, your bio, one of your bios that I read online, um, preparing for the interview was that like, you know, it was we're, when we're talking about the timing about when you sort of got into programming and people, you know, you talk about people like we're, you, you sort of gave up on the sciences because people wanted to pay you too much for programming or something like that. Um, uh, but it was the mid nineties during the big dot com boom and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it, not only did they want to pay big, well, I mean, big dollars is sort of relative. I, I you know, I'm not rich. I didn't, I didn't get into one of these dot com things and, and make a ton of money. Um, is I wanted to work on interesting things. I didn't want to work on boring things. And some of the people during the middle '90s were doing some really interesting stuff. Stuff that we we sort of use every day now that we don't even realize someone invented because we don't. We have forgotten that there was like an HTML 0.9 that that its big thing was like the blink tag. Everyone went crazy on the blink tag for a year. Uh, and then, you know, it didn't have tables or, or maybe 0.9 had tables. I, I forget. But, you know, tables were, were a huge thing. But now no one cares about that. It's we've gone so far beyond that. And I was going to get a chance to do that where, you know, again, in the sciences, I was like, you've, you've done the interesting bit now, and now you have like the rest of the year to sort of just rehash the interesting bit over and over and over again. Um, but, you know, who knew that I'd be a programmer doing maintenance, just rehashing the same code over and over and over again, um, having tried to leave that situation. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that, so you said in my, my bio, uh, it's kind of here weird to hear someone read it back to me. Like I write it and I forget about it. It gets like sent off into the world and I never change it. Um, so you mentioned Pearl New Features, which is one of the really exciting books I have on LeanPub because you're the only place that really offers me the opportunity to update that book every time a version of Pearl comes out. And everyone who has already purchased the book gets the update for free. I didn't want anyone to buy the book and then like a year later, it's like, oh, I have to buy something else. I mean, I mean, I could figure out some system for that, but 
we just released Pearl 538, just like in June. I mean, not we, the, the Pearl community did. I wasn't really involved with it. Uh, and I just updated the book to the previous version, 536, because I got kind of stuck trying to complete the whole update before releasing. I mean, you don't charge me per release. I could release, you know, actually, I don't know. Maybe I could, I don't know how frequently I could release when you would, you know, stop me. But it's it's not any sort of rate that would limit me physically. Like if I want every day, if I want to give an update, I could do that and everyone could get the new updates right away with no additional cost. And that was very attractive for that book. Uh, like I said, I got stuck on 536 and it was like a year between updates. But now I think for 538, I'm just going to have to say, look, I'm just going to have to release some stuff in the interim and people are just going to have to be used to the idea that maybe, maybe something is a little bit incomplete or I haven't completely fleshed out the idea. And I love that LeanPod lets me do that. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before the interview started about the other channels that are out there where I could put ebooks. Um, they're, they're, they just don't have that idea. They're like, the book is written, you've put it out there, it's done. This is a title, it has a scoo, you know, whatever. Uh, and we move on. And those things make sense, like if you're doing a novel or, uh, you know, a novella or, or something where you're not really going to keep adding on to it. You Like, say in the romance genre, which is a very popular um, ebook genre, where you can, you know, like, finish one book and go right into the next. Um, and you can, some people can make some serious money there. Um, you don't need to release updates. You just, you just start a new book. And maybe it's a series, or maybe it's it's something else. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, like uh, the the um, I, of course I could talk about that kind of stuff forever. But like one of the interesting things that uh, uh, one of the one of the versions of the origin story of Lean Pub is my co-founder Peter published a programming book, and it was outdated the week after it came out. Um, the print version. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so if you're if, one of the reasons, like Lean, Lean Pub wasn't made for programmers, but one of the reasons it's been so popular with people writing about technology and programming stuff is exactly like new features can be released in a programming language or something like that. And so if you can just update the book easily, um, then that book is still relevant. Or like, for example, one of the, the jokes I tell or is like when I'm trying to explain programming book writing to people who aren't programmers, I always say like, imagine if you wrote a book yourself and there was one typo in it and that meant no one could open the book, right? Oh, programming yeah. is programming is kind of like that, right? And so, but if you're writing a programming book, there's this kind of meta thing where like if there's one typo in one code sample, then people won't be able to like use your, they'll run into this problem and they won't know if it's, they'll run into that crazy problem where it's like, is it me or is it the book and, and stuff like that. And the idea of an easily updatable book solves this sort of big problem in the sort of programming book writing and publishing yeah. world. So I published a book called Learning Perl 6. So there was this language that was an offshoot of Perl called Perl 6, and it's now called Raku because just the confusion was too weird. It's it's a completely sort of separate language. And it has some really, really nice features, and I I, I wrote a book on it. But you know, you talk about these timelines. The, the timeline from when I finish the book and give it to the publisher to make camera-ready art is like 18 months. So, you know, a, a traditional publisher, if they're going to make dead tree books, they don't want a line of resources, you know, printers, uh, distributors, and all this before they know they're going to have something. And now you start working backward. Okay, so we're going to release it on this day. Well, we need three months lead time 
to make that date to have, you know, the books on pallets in trucks on their way out. Uh, and so before that, we need to have like six months time for proofreading, uh, revisions and stuff like that. And then, you know, you keep going back and pretty soon, um, you know, you're two years away from uh, where you started writing for, and this is one of the things that was really bothered me with writing this learning pro six book is that the language was still in development. And so I, I actually wrote that book three times. Like I started over twice because I just got to the point where you know, I had an idea of how I wanted to present the material and then the language just changed. Like they would, they had add some new feature and it's not just really a feature, but it's a way of thinking about things and the way they want to arrange things. You know, I'd say all oh, the way I'm presenting it, it's just not going to give people the flavor or the idea of what they need to do. So now I have to start over. I have to put things in a different order, which means that now the chapters are in a different order. They have to flow into each other in a different way. And, uh, and yeah, it was... If I could have done that in Lean Pub, I mean, I probably could have. I, I don't know when you guys started, but this was probably like 2000. I don't even know what year it was. It was a while ago. Um, that probably would have satisfied a lot of people a lot more. So even if I made big changes, they could see progress faster. And it, maybe it was wrong in that month, but the next month it would be fixed. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's reminding me of um, one interesting thing. So we we LeanPub was founded in two thousand and ten, um, and one one interesting thing that sort of like changed over that time is you mentioned you know the sort of like if you go on a normal bookstore you expect the book to be finished right, um, uh, yeah. and that you know if you're the kind of an author who wants to update stuff often the the sort of like self publishing platforms aren't aren't really set up for easy updates and stuff like that. Um, at the beginning, we would get pretty frequently. And this is all just me kind of re half-assed remembering, but like people going, why would I want to buy an unfinished book? Why would I want to buy an unfinished book? Um, why would anybody want to buy an unfinished book? That kind of grumpy, grumpy kind of reactionary thing that people would do. And we just don't get that anymore. Um, uh, people get it now. Um, uh, they might, Even if they're new to LeanPub, um, this sort of idea of like things being books being updatable and the sort of excitement of getting a new release and stuff like that is just something that's sort of becoming more and more commonly understood. Uh, yeah, it's actually it's actually pretty nice. Um, you know, I to update a book on LeanPub, all I have to do is drop some files into a, a nice web page that automatically figures out you know where they go, and then it gives me a box that says I'll oh, send this email or send this message to all the I, I don't know what you call them subscribers or purchasers or whatever it is, but it's amazingly easy. It's like, I don't have to coordinate anything. It, LeanPub just says, do this, put some text here. Okay, you're done. And I guess they all get it. I mean, I don't know. I don't really hear too much yeah. feedback on it. Yeah, those are called, um, what the feature uh, Brian's talking about is called release notes. So when you're publishing a major new version, like a new like a new chapter or something like that in your book, um, you go to the publish page on your for your book on LeanPub and you can click the publish button, but there's also this opportunity to send a message to your reader. We call them re we just call them readers, but they're okay. You need, but it's actually only a subset. It's basically people who haven't opted out of getting these releases. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh most people love getting the release notes, I think. They like getting as like one one uh caveat to any LeanPub authors listening, you're not allowed to do that every day. <laughs> Don't spam people with with the release notes. Um uh but you like if you if you're publishing a new chapter or a significant revision or something like that it's perfectly perfectly acceptable to do that and people do like getting interactions with authors learning that there's an update to something that they bought that's free um is just is just kind of interesting to people and exciting um 
another another thing we actually had to say back in the day to sort of get convinced people of the viability of this process was um, the the sort of history of in progress publishing in fiction uh, was serial publishing in magazines. Well, yeah, I mean Dickens was famous for this, right? So, so exactly. So like you know what what you know my sort of like you know one of the reasons if you see those big fat nineteenth century English novels one of the reasons they're so big is that like they started out with like maybe they were only going to be 100 pages long but they became a hit as they were being published monthly in these magazines um and then uh, and so all of a sudden dickens's outline got a little bit bigger if he realized he had a hit on his hands um but the key feature of th that kind of pro publishing uh is that you don't change what you published in the past uh when a oh, chapter yeah. is out when a chapter is out a chapter is out and one of the one of the things that like people started liking about Lean Pub was like, oh, I I can go back and actually change something in chapter one, and that like for a lot of readers like that kind of like ah you know I thought I was done with chapter one, but getting your head around like actually like you know you might want to reread that chapter a while later the author might have changed it and it might be better now um, is just yeah it's just a sort of like an interesting kind of I don't know iterative relationship to books like that that's always existed in a certain way of course people reread and stuff like that but now that. When you go back to it, it might be different. So I've had all of these frustrations with with EPUB, and I mean, there's the the basic mechanics of it, but I mean, we we've so undersold. Well, not all. We've sort of oversold and underdelivered on this thing. I mean, imagine an ebook where you could say be on the first chapter, and you had a, a slider where you could say, "Show me," um, you know, revision three, and that, like that's all in the thing that we deliver like you could you could have an archive of all of the changes um you know and then imagine doing that in some sort of weird um fictional genre where it's like a choose your own adventure but you could then jump around and change uh what the reader thought they saw to to mess with their mind i mean imagine what sort of stories could come out of that if if we could have actual interactive books like that. I mean I know that's not what we're supposed to be talking about here but oh I I've been publishing ebooks and there's just features that I wish were there like you know easily embedding video or or interactive features that we just you can't get to work on enough of the market's players um you know the Nook or the Kindle or whatever to to actually make it work out yeah no the um yeah, this is perfectly fine. Actually, the the sort of normal all, all we've done is taken something that's normally discussed at the end of the interview and put it in the middle, okay, uh, which is fine. No, no, I would love. There are actually people who skip to the part where we talk about writing and publishing in the podcast because that's what they're interested in hearing about. Mm -hmm. And this, so this kind of stuff is just like super fun and, and interesting to talk about, particularly uh, with someone who's had experience going back, you know, as far as as far as you have, and that you've worked with sort of conventional publishers and conventional publishing processes like you just described, and you've seen these these changes over the years. Uh, that was actually going to be one of my questions is like, what's the biggest change you've seen? I think you, maybe you've got your first book was 2004 or something like that. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, one question I wanted to ask was what's the, in, in terms of dealing with conventional publishers, what's the biggest change you've seen in the last like 20 years, let's say? Well, I was hoping you would ask me that question because that's the one thing I thought about when I was walking around today. Um, so when I started with O'Reilly, they had these amazing books where they, they had a special spine on them, and it was called a rep cover. So you, if you look at the spine of most trade paperback technology books now, it's just glued right directly to the pages. But this spine was was like a, I don't want to say origami because it wasn't really ornate, but 
when you open the book, the spine would move away from the pages so that you didn't crease the spine. Um, you know, that's really cool. And, you know, when Tim O'Reilly started all this, they had a, a lot of latitude to do a lot of different things because just everyone was buying technology books in the, in the 90s, so there was a lot of money. And he really cared about how these things looked and how they felt and how they, like, opened and, and that. And, and then, like, maybe 10 years later, I was at this conference and I was talking to an O'Reilly editor, and I, um, I don't remember his name. He was not part of my group, and he, I, I wasn't working with him, but I, I was complaining about pagination. And this is one of my things, that um, I really hate orphans and widows in books. And, and for those who don't know what I'm talking about, um, you're going to see it in my books on LeanPub because I generate this stuff with one of the, the PDF version is generated with FlawTech. You know, a lot is a typesetting program and, you know, I come from physics and we use this stuff to do papers. And so I'm used to it, but it doesn't really have good control of where things end up. And so you'll find like one word of a sentence at the top of a page because that's where the paragraph ended. And it just, uh, but that's happened in in the trade sort of stuff too, is it's just too much work to go through the volume of books that we're producing and have all the editors and paginators and copy editors figure out all the, the typography to make things look really nice on the page. This is stuff that we didn't think about before because publishing had such a high barrier to entry because no one wanted to commit resources to something that wasn't going to be good. And so they committed resources to something that they really, really worked on and made amazing. I, I have um, a physics textbook still on my shelf, Classical Mechanics by Marion. And if you're a physics people out there, you've probably used this book in either a fancy undergraduate program or a graduate program. Um, my physics professor who taught classical mechanics said there's not a mistake in this book. There's not a, there's not a, a misplaced letter there's not misplaced punctuation. There's not a misspelling. There's nothing. Um, and we really don't have that today. I mean, first, there's the speed at which we have to publish things. But also, we, we don't have the time to, to sit and look at the art of the book. So I'm a big, you know, Tufti fan. You know, Edward Tufti talks about how we get information, how we convey information by putting things in, into, into symbols and words and whatnot. Um, and we sort of lost that just because we need to put a lot of stuff out there into the market because people are demanding it now and they don't want to pay that much for it. So, you know, that, that was, that, that always sort of hurts a little bit when just because of the, the demands of the marketplace, you're not getting all the nice stuff that you could get before. And then, like you say, like you don't get so many complaints now about um, the book's not perfect, it's not finished or whatever. I don't get any complaints about the typography, but it still kills me that that I can't make that prettier. Um, O'Reilly uses this 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 fancy program. Well, I mean, I don't think I'm betraying any secrets here. It's called Atlas. It's something that you can pay for. Yeah. Um, you can pay several thousand dollars for a license for this thing, and it makes beautiful PDFs. But I mean, I would if I was going to do that for the books I was going to put through LeanPub, I wouldn't have any money left over. I mean, I make a lot of money through LeanPub. I mean, a lot more than I would expect from publishing because I think you guys just upped the royalty rates to like 80%. I think it was 70 uh, before. Oh, no, you're in the, in the in the before time, it was actually 90. We, we moved. Oh, has it gone down? 80. Well, that was a long time ago now. But yeah. Okay. Um, 
okay. For some reason, I had seventy. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so, I so let's take my most popular book, Learning Pearl. So, in the retail trade, it's not unusual that you would that the all the authors together would get ten percent of the wholesale revenue. So, I we're going to do some numbers here, and people are often interested when I talk about this. So we'll just keep going. Um, let's say. Uh, Learning Pearl is priced at thirty nine ninety nine, but we'll just say forty dollars. Well, the wholesale price is probably fifty or fifty five percent of that, which means that the publisher has sold the book or given the book to a distributor. The distributor is going to give it to the the end uh, seller, and they're going to charge whatever they want. So they buy it at fifty five percent of the the wholesale. I mean the the price on the book. And then they give you like a 30% discount, but it's not a 30% discount. It's just, there's this fake number that set the wholesale price, which they, now they're going to get, you know, whatever margin they, they want to get out of the thing. So my revenue, so my royalty as the author comes off that wholesale price. That's the money that the publisher actually received. Now, so 10% of 55% is, you know, like, you know, five and a half percent. And I'm typically have a co-author, so I'm sharing that in some way. I'm getting like a buck a book or, or less. Go to LeanPub, I sell a book for, and this is one of the interesting things is there is no price really on a LeanPub book. I mean, some people can do that, but I could say this is the minimum you have to pay to get this book. And I, some of the books that are set really low, like I think the lowest I sell it is for like nine bucks or something because another channel that I publish under sets a minimum price of that and I can't sell it anywhere lower um so there's that now so say someone comes in and pays that price and you're giving me 80 or 90 percent of the 10 bucks i'm getting like eight bucks a book i could be getting eight bucks a book um if the lowest price is 10 bucks and that's represents eight sales in the retail channel so there was a time a couple years ago where my lean pub revenue past my all other channels revenue. So I have two other publishers, O'Reilly and Addison Wesley. Um, that was, again, I'm not buying any Ferraris or anything. Uh, I, I can buy a, you know, maybe an extra cup of coffee a week or something. But it was interesting to see those numbers pass each other. Uh, but and I, I tell authors this a lot, like you're not going to make money off the off a a book. You might make money off 10 books, but the money you're going to get from other places because you have your name out there or associated with these things is going to be a lot more maybe than it would be without that stuff out there. So I, I don't know how many titles I have. I have a lot, but I don't think I would have gotten the opportunities I did that without that sort of exposure. Yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing all that really sort of hard one uh, detailed kind of, you know, ad ad advice and information, right? As you say, when you start talking about these kinds of things, people who haven't gone through it yet or haven't had anyone to talk to about it are like, oh my God, this is exactly what I've always wanted to know. Um, and yes, the, 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 the margins for authors in the conventional publishing world for print books really are that low. Um, you know, for academic books, you might even maybe get 1% of, of the sale price or something like that. Um, so if your book sells for a hundred dollars, you might get $1 and that might take a year for you to get it six months or a year or something like that, given publisher timelines and things like that. But uh, that said, um, 
the great, you can get great value in your life and your career from being a published author and having a book or books out there. Um, and particularly, so for example, like the sort of, um, one sort of canonical type of LeanPub author is a consultant who publishes a book on LeanPub and then actually gets print copies uh, that they sell themselves at conferences <laughs> or when they give talks and stuff like that, right? And it's kind of, or they might give it out for free, but it's a calling, it's basically a calling card or like giving someone your business card or something like that is the way a lot of people, a lot of people view that and all kinds of opportunities can open up. Back when, back when Lean, this is an old story, but we used to be, we used to do consulting um, uh, on the side um, and our most lucrative client pirated my co I uh, had, a, had, oh, had yeah. someone working for them who pirated one of Peter's books and that's how he discovered us. Um, so, you know, they're, they're the sort of those paths to discovery can, can be sort of like kind of unusual uh, but but having stuff out there can really help. Uh, when it comes to the seventy percent, I'm imagining that that's probably there's um one of the big platforms out there has has various kind of different levels of yeah uh, of of ebook kind of um, royalties that they pay, and one of those levels is seventy percent. So we pay eighty, um, and it it is interesting how much like even though, although sometimes it's thirty five percent on the other platform as well, but um, it is super interesting the way that eighty percent like if you can make eighty percent on a sale. All of a sudden, certain types of book projects become viable uh, for authors that just absolutely would not have been viable, you know, in in, in the past. Um, uh, so people can like make enough money for like their kids' college tuition sometimes, or you know, we do we do have six figure earning authors on LeanPub and stuff like that. But um, you know, if you if you've got a book that like let's say you're an expert in I don't know like neurosurgery or something like that, right? And there's maybe like two thousand people in the world total who could ever ever buy your book good luck can well maybe if it's neurosurgeons you could probably convince a publisher to do that because they've got lots of money but you know what you know what i mean convincing a convincing yeah. publisher or convincing your spouse you know that you should spend the time on this kind of project might be very difficult to do but if you can say actually i'm going to be making 80 percent royalties on this um and i can because it's the internet i can reach people everywhere um you know then then certain kinds of book projects become viable that that just yeah just weren't otherwise one of the ideas I had, and you know, I, I've just got so many things that I'm doing that I don't have time for this, is I thought if I could write enough on, on something like LeanPub to have a certain like recurring income, like I don't need to, so you know, for those of you who are, are gonna be authors, you're gonna write a book and you're gonna put it somewhere and you're gonna get a whole bunch of sales for like a week. And then no one's gonna know you're alive the week after that. Uh, it's you get over it very quickly. Um, you realize what the cycle is. Um, but if I could just have a book every month, like a new title, and it doesn't have to be long, maybe say it's like 60 to 100 pages, and it's just on some new subject and it gets out there, and I make just enough money to make it to the next month, that would be that would be a nice life for me. I love writing. I don't get paid for most of the writing I do. Um, you know, I'm all over places like Stack Overflow and Reddit and and things like this, talking about Pearl, no one's paying me for that stuff. But if I say, want to write a book on, uh, say like Minion, which is a, a job queue thing out of the Mojulicious project, and I want to spend a month doing that and publish it, and I could say get you know, $2,000 for that in that month, and then just not count on any other revenue, and the next month write something on say, like you know XML processing in Pearl. And then, you know, that month be done with it and then 
you know, get the money and expect no further income and then just move on and keep doing that. Um, that would be very nice. And I should just do that. But I, I mean, there's all sorts of other things going on in life. Like, you know, it's July. So I'm watching the Tour de France six hours yeah. today. Yeah. It's, you're reminding me, I hope I'm not misremembering this, but, um, occasionally we have a special guest on the podcast who's like an expert from the book publishing industry or sort of like a best-selling, best-selling author and stuff like that. And we had this, um, really great author named, uh, Christine Catherine Rush, um, on the podcast some time ago. And I think specifically she and her husband write with a monthly, or at least they did, they write with a monthly cadence. Um, I think they mostly write science fiction and stuff like that. And when you've got the, when you really, if you can't, and it's very hard to do, I guess is the thing, as you're just pointing out, I think life gets in the way. Um, but, um, but yes, the, specifically for anyone interested, the monthly cadence is actually a thing. Um, that's sort of understood in the publishing, self-publishing world. And if you can stick to it, then people come to expect it. Uh, you can get fans. People look forward to your next one coming out. They tell their friends about it, stuff like that. And yeah, just that it's, it's actually apparently like that with like podcast episodes as well, which we, yeah. I wish we were better at, but, um, but you know, you know, people, oh, it's Tuesday, you know, the front matter podcast is out or something like that. And yes, the, when, if you're, if you're a content creator, sort of regular finding your regular cadence that works for you really works. And yeah, when in, in the world, I'm writing an article called the joy of self-publishing in the 21st century right now. Um, and it is, it is just amazing. Like with the royalty rates that you could get on things like lean pub, but there's, of course, there's other ones too, you know, um, uh, if you can reach like a thousand people, I mean, a Patreon's like this too, right? Like if you can reach like a thousand people with your book every, with a new book every month and you're making eight bucks on a sale, well, that's a pretty good supplementary income yeah. or, or total income even. I mean, you know, and like, it's, you've got the whole world is your audience. You know, if you, if you set yourself that goal of reaching like, let's just to spit, pick lean pub as an example, I'm going to sell a book for 10 bucks minimum price. If I can reach a thousand people with that book in the first week when I publish it in that month, you know, then, you know, it, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to try that some year. I just, I'm getting to the point where I'm having to, to think about, um, there's so many things I want to do and maybe it's time in life to like just scratch some of them off the list and just say, I'm just never going to do that. Um, but, but I love writing and I wish I had more time for writing, but then like in technology, one of the things is you have to spend a lot of time um, figuring stuff out and that, and that sort of takes a while. And some things can get, can get really complicated where you can't be sure you're going to deliver in a month. And like you said, those, those fans really expect you like Tuesday at 8 AM is when this thing hits. And I'm sitting there with my Kindle ready to download this thing as soon as it's available. Um, there's a great documentary, uh, a movie, I forget what it's called, but it followed like four romance authors and, and that forget the particular genre it's it's genre fiction but it's very profitable but there's you become a slave to sort of this machinery where the the fans expect something and you have to go to conferences and you have to do um you have to have that regularity there and one of the things that i mean the reasons i've set my life the way it has is i, I like to disappear for you know a couple weeks or, or months or years at a time um, and not have those ongoing responsibilities. Books were an amazing way to do that because I could sort of be disappear for, you know, six months and I, I don't really active in anything. My friends don't hear from me or whatever. And then I come back and there's a book with, with the online publishing. Now, no, you're, 
you have to be there. Like, like you talk about the podcast and that there are podcasts that I, that I've started um, curating for my feed just because they don't release weekly like they used to. I, I don't know why I'm doing that. It's kind of stupid, but I just realized the podcast is, I mean, I know how it goes. You, you get popular and you get busy and you, you demand higher and higher quality. And so it takes you longer and longer to produce a thing. And then you don't want to keep doing it. And then you skip a week and then, oh, then you skip it. Now it's every two weeks. And I don't know. It's, it's dumb. Yeah, no, this it's just a challenge. It's the challenge of, um, one of the challenges of self-publishing is, I mean, you know, sort of make carving out the time and motivation and also like, you know, understanding that audiences are like that, right? Like there might be like Tuesday afternoon walk. That's this podcast. And if yep. it doesn't come out, you're like, ah, like, what am I going to do now? Like I was counting on that. Um, and so these things can be woven, woven into our lives and in ways that we sort of like, we kind of ex enjoy the anticipation. We enjoy it when it comes out. Um, and, but as you say, you can be a slave to it. Another thing that people in the self-publishing world talk about too, is being a slave to the, like the algorithm, particularly like Amazon, oh, yeah, yeah. Amazon bestseller lists and stuff like that. They really reward regular publishing for, for self-published genre fiction. My understanding is, and that can really be like, oh my God, like. I've got two hours, I better bang out 20,000 words. Um, <laughs> so I can sort of like, you know, keep up with, with, with the schedule. So, so this is another interesting point. So we, you know, self-publishing, if you remember like back in the day, say like in the eighties, they talk about desktop publishing, you know, you got WordStar on your, you know, your whatever IBM sort of machine you have, and you can print it out on your, your fancy $2,000 laser printer, um, and pass it around your friends and all this. And, and then we get into EPUB and, and self-publishing on places like MeanPub, and we think we're revolutionizing how all this uh, happens. But then we start to end up at the same place we were before. Like you were talking about, you have a or LeanPub as a service to promote the book on other channels besides LeanPub. And and I know that I can, I think, arrange like you know cover designers or artists or you know other sorts of things through LeanPub. And the more and more services you add, the more it resembles the traditional publishing I was involved with before. Like there's going to be some account manager eventually who's, and even if it's like virtual, um, sort of shepherding my book. I mean, I, I, I give you this, this EPUB or, you know, Markdown. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. You guys have the simplest formats for letting people write things and then you will turn it into whatever it needs to be turned into. Um, I give that to someone and it, it somehow it gets a cover that's really nice. Sometimes it, you know, it, it's, it gets, you know, a, a back cover blurb or, you know, whatever you want to do. And like, this is the same thing that publishers were doing before. Uh, it's amazing. Well, take for instance, Wikipedia, like Wikipedia, we started off with this idea that we're just going to let the world create us an encyclopedia. There's not going to be any rules. Anyone's going to be able to, to do this thing. What's turned into is there is a core group of people who basically control the whole thing, just like we had with encyclopedia authors before. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just all the way things evolved to, because that's the way it is. You know, there, there's this great thing called, um, what's it called? Chester, Chesterton Spence. I don't know if you've heard of this, heard that, no. but like, it's, it's one of these sort of philosophy principles where when you look at something, you have to figure out why it's that way, because it's probably that way for a reason. Um, this thing doesn't make any sense to me. And, uh, I forget the example they used originally, if the fence was open or it was closed or it was hung in a certain way, 
but it probably made sense in whatever context that fence was serving. And you might not have that context. That context might be gone. But now we try to break all the rules with self-publishing, but we didn't realize why all those rules were there in the first place. As an author, I do not want to talk to marketing people. I do not want to do a lot of the services that I actually need to do to make my book successful. And so there were agents who did that for me. I mean, not agents in the sense of a like an author's agent, but just other people who acted on my behalf to do things. Like I, I've never designed my own covers. Even the covers I have on Lean Pup, um, that was designed by uh, Sebastian Rydell because the one I did sucked. Um, uh, he's a, the guy who uh, came up with uh, Mojalicious, the, the big web framework in Perl, and he's got a really nice design sensibility. And so he gave me this this other sort of idea and I had just kept it. That's why how the covers look the same. I wasn't trying to build brand identity. I just can't change it myself because it will look ugly. Um, and then we just get back to where we were before is where we have a lot of people doing the stuff that we thought we were going to be able to do ourselves anyway. Now we're still getting more money for it and we've automated a lot of stuff and we've accepted um, a different way of doing it. But yeah, we're, we're... imagine LeanPub in like 10 years from now where all people can be even more successful than they would be on their own and then they could be today just because you guys have more and more things figured out and people just accept that and the market expects that and it just happens. Yeah, no, de definitely. It's it's really exciting. And yeah, the um, uh, the, that you're reminding me of something that's sort of like something of a controversy in the public, the book, the book sort of blogosphere, the book author blogosphere, which is basically that like increasingly publishers are demanding more and more of that marketing work from the authors themselves. I don't know if you've heard that, but like currently, if you if you want to get a book published with a conventional publisher, they might demand that you write a business plan. Like an actual business. Oh yeah, yeah. like not like the, the kind of thing that in the past you would have been like, ah, you take care of that. I'm an, I, I'm writing novels about this, or like I'm writing. I'm an expert in my field, but I'm not an expert in your field. You're the publisher. You do it. Now they're like, no, you need you need to write a business plan. You need to tell us how you're going to market the book. And increasingly, people are going like, uh, you know, isn't that isn't that your job? Like, you know, what do what do I need? And then asking the next question, which is, what do I need you for? And like, I hadn't really quite thought about it in detail, but when you were bringing up that, like, you know, people aren't actually kind of com complaining about sort of things not being quite kind of perfect like they would have in the past. And there's a certain, um, this is kind of like, kind of just sort of random observations about things, which is quite interesting to to me, but like the, um, there's a certain kind of author who like gets to know, gets to know like EPUB, right? And they, they might get very technical about it. And then they'll notice like a sort of formatting issue. Um, which by the way, if you see one in the lean pub, like book, please tell us about it. We might not be able to get to fixing it at any time soon, but if you see any issues, no matter how detailed, please let us know. But when I then explain to them, which they might know would not have internalized, you know, that on an e-reader, people can choose the font, right? And they can choose the font <laughs> size and like e-readers are going to be like as small as like a, I don't know, an Apple watch or as big as like a sort of like 50 inch monitor or someone's television, you know, or like they might be going landscape and portrait flipping back and forth and changing the background color from dark mode and light mode and blah 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 and get like and just telling them that like you actually you don't have that much control uh anymore yourself over what the reader's seeing the other side of that is the reader feels like they have control and actually like the payoff for that control is better than like perfect typesetting yeah 
That stuff's really tough when you think about the sort of stuff technology books have to do. Like some parts of the book, like the code, has to be shown in a very particular way. You can't substitute anything. You can't, um, if you, sometimes if you wrap the lines, like say if you're showing something like Python, which is very line oriented, um, you know, it wants indention to be in a certain way. You, you can't mess around with that. That's the toughest thing I've had with EPUB. And I've just gotten over everything else. Like, I, I just can't have it. I don't have time to think about it. Um, and if I did find some trick, it's only going to work on, you know, like the, the latest particular Kindle or something. They're trying to get it to work everywhere. Like, there's stuff that I'm so sad. You know, I work mostly on a Mac. And, you know, I can look at things in Apple Books. But then that thing won't work in Kindle. Or that thing won't work in, you know, whatever. Or, you know, the other way around. It's It reminds me of the days of the early web where, where you had to choose a browser. And then sometimes that browser uh, doesn't do the thing that you wanted. So, and I, I'm actually back to that now. I, I use three different browsers um, regularly just because they act differently in certain situations. And I prefer one to the other for some websites. It's, and anyway, it's, it's interesting to see how that's going to play out in EPUB. And, but one of my, it's interesting. One of my advice to authors is once you've written the thing and you put it out there and it, it's like that, just forget about it. Just, you can't change it. There's no reason um, to be upset about it because you, the world is the way the world is. And you, you got your information out there. Um, I've seen a lot of first time authors. They, they get, so really exercise when they when they get the the final product in their hand, even if it's like a print book, and like no one knows but you. Like so, I was in the the arts world for a long time, and I had to learn when talking to artists, like performing artists, say like dancers, singers, whatever, never to compliment them, because all they think about when they're coming off stage is I really screwed that up, and they know what they screwed up. And you may say maybe the conductor or whatever knows that they screwed up. Um, but the audience doesn't. The audience doesn't even know. Like I, I've sat in some of these conversations where like the conductor will come over and, and, and say, hey, you know, that, that thing in, you know, bar two of the second, well, you know, whatever. And like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. And he's like, okay, just next time. And like that's the entire conversation. They, they know. They know exactly. Um, and painters are like this, uh, you know, too. I, I think I was who I was listening to talk about this, maybe John Berger, um, an English painter, a contemporary English painter, talk about, you know, all I see are the mistakes. Now, as an author, forget about it. You put it out there, move on, start writing the next thing. Um, people are going to complain no matter what you do, so don't try to get to zero complaints. There's a lot of, as I said before, a lot of hard-won wisdom in, <laughs> in, in some of the things that you're yeah. saying there, um, in particular the... Um, you know, one, one, the, the, the sort of lean pub answer to that, like it's like to that perfectionism is, well, first of all, don't worry about formatting while you're writing. Um, yes, exactly. What you were, when you're when you're done, done, then you can worry about formatting. Um, and it and it can be incredibly important for certain certain projects, uh, and at a certain stage. Also, with lean pub, if there is a, one of the great things about lean pub is if you are a perfectionist and you can't let it go, you actually can fix that typo for everyone around the world in one second. Uh, but it is it is definitely true that there's like particularly you mentioned like a first time author or something like that like it is and we're all guilty of it you can get really worked up and like feel like a calamity occurred for something that no one else will ever notice 
Um, and my, 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 like my, my version of that, the advice that you the great advice, this advice that you just gave of letting it go is like, just get it out there. Just get it out there. Do not let fear of a typo <laughs> or a mistake get in the way of getting, getting anything out there. Because if there's going to be an audience for what you're writing at all, they're not going to care. Uh, and if someone complains, that means they read the book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and they're probably like, they're, and like, you know, again, with the lean public, they can tell you like, you know, some of the best interactions readers and authors have is when the reader's like, I found a typo. And the author's like, thanks. You know? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You could, you could turn that into kind of a happy experience where they're not like mad at you for your laziness and your typo. Um, but you're reminding me that like, um, I was or not reminding me, like making me think of something I haven't really thought about before, which is that like, and again, things like this have changed, but for the longest time, there was this very dominant discourse about how self-publishing, self-published books are going to be low quality. And this guess, you know, you can tell who, the, who that came from, right? The people protecting their own, their own interests and preferences and stuff like that. Uh, but, um, and I never quite put it together before that there was a kind of like, I don't know, like poisonous interrelationship there with sort of a publisher telling you that unless if there's a single typo in your book, then it's low quality. And this other person's like the other person might not have thought that before. They might have been like, no, my my ideas are the most important thing and getting them out there is the most important thing. And then being turned into thinking that like maybe unless you don't unless you have two years of book production process, you know, you're you're producing something low quality. And like it just reminds me of like my my first the first thing I did when I learned about the internet was I downloaded the brothers Karamazov. Oh uh, I didn't care that it was I didn't care what the font was. Now I had a copy of Brothers Kramazaw, you know, that I could read. Um, anyway, that's so, always so my position on that. I've always been pretty fortunate with the editors I've had um, when I was doing the regular retail publishing. And especially, say, with like Mastering Pearl, which is probably my, my least selling traditional book, just because it's advanced. It, you know, so I have like Learning Pearl, and let's say that, you just normalize that to a hundred. Intermediate Pearl, which is the follow-on book, probably sells like one tenth of that. Mastering Pearl, probably one tenth of Intermediate Pearl. But Alison Randall was the editor on that, and she was another Pearl person and um, a really good writer. And she really helped define the the direction of the book. So we could we could figure out the structure and the flow. I, I think this should go in. I think this shouldn't go in, or something like that. But, uh, and that was really nice, but I mean, I also just knew her personally, but we can, one of the things that any new author should do is find some person who is just going to tear them apart. I have a friend who is writing a book, um, now called, um, don't trust verify. It's, it's a book about, um, media and journalism and, and who we should believe and who we shouldn't believe and and this sort of thing. And he is going through this thing and um, having lots of people read it through, I think it's Substack. Uh, if it's medium, don't don't kill me, but um, it's one of those. And so he gets a lot of feedback from these, these little essays he puts out that aren't really the book, but they're the ideas for what he's thinking about. And he, he can try out ideas and, and see what people respond with. And then they can sort of act as editors as sort of that um, that, that true north or that guiding light where, no, you know, I don't really think this fits in with, you know, where you were trying to get to or, you know, whatever it is. 
if you're if you're writing your first thing, and unless you have a really good idea of your area, or there's not that many other people who have a good idea of your area, have have some solid people that you're not going to get mad at when they give you some really low level advice, like this paragraph doesn't need to be there, or you know whatever it is, or or you know this statement is a bit too strong. Maybe you need to to show a little bit of this or or anything. People who are talking to you about typos, you know, just sort of ignore them. You handle typos at the end. But having a good editor that that can tell you something about you, if you're doing the right thing or not, is priceless. Find that friend. Um, and, I, and I know there used to be editors in the publishing world who were like that, like the famous, famous editors. But those really... I was, I was asking a friend about this the other day. We were walking down... We were in Times Square for some reason. We were looking for cheesecake at Junior's. And I was thinking, I don't know the names of any playwrights anymore. I don't know the names of like any famous like book people. Like, you know, Jackie Onassis used to be a famous editor. I mean, maybe just for her name, but um, I mean, this is sort of back in the day that the editor seemed like a guiding force in the, in the evolution of a book, even if you were like a famous novelist. Uh, you know, find that person. I mean, I, I'm lucky to have had those people in my life. I mean, Randall Schwartz, who got me into the book stuff, was always very, very good at giving me advice about things. I mean, his he would always look at something I wrote, and it's like, you don't need this part, or get rid of that part, or there's a step here that's missing. You don't realize that it's missing because you're used to this thing. Um, but, but you know, you're, you're, you would always tell me, your job is to, to find out where the the reader is starting and to get them step by step to the place you want them to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I know that's sort of a mismatch of ideas there, but no, 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 no. That's, that's really great. Actually. Uh, One of the, one of the really interesting uh, points you made there that can actually be really, really difficult, particularly if you're publishing for the first time and you're out there for the first time, you said, a um, people are going to come, no matter what you do, someone's going to complain about it. Um, And um, people are going to shit all over some people are going to shit all over anything that you do. Um, but distinguishing the advice from the complaints is, yes. is a really important thing to learn. And that's like, so when you're talking about that, getting that kind of advice that you're talking about, that is absolutely golden. If you could find that one person, if it's, you know, an early re, if you published your book two chapters in and you're getting early, early readers or something like that, or you're publishing your, your, your sort of draft chapters as, as blog posts or, or something like that, tr- trying out ideas and getting that that proper feedback and the proper feedback will as you say will people will help you out with typos and stuff if they want to but the proper feedback is at the level of the ideas and the ex- the expression of them and like your do you really have a good idea of what you're trying to do here you know um mm-hmm. and those those can be the things where you can be long into a project and someone can just snap you out of your your hallucination and you're like what am i doing? what what have i been doing all this time i never had any clear idea um uh which can be kind of a very strange experience but um but yeah, having having that kind of great advice, and but again, it all in, in one that involves getting it out there, right? You mm-hmm. getting it out there. You can't get advice if you don't get it out there. You can't get feedback if you don't get it out there. And again, that can be the hardest hurdle psychologically to get over. Uh, uh, and again, it's sort of these weird paradoxes about publishing where people can be like they want to publish a book and they might even think about being famous, but then they're very shy um, at the same time. All, just all these sort of normal human experience of going through that. Um, yeah. So there, there's an important point there, um, again, for anyone aspiring to be an author, is that 
say you're three months into a project and you realize because someone made a comment that everything you've written is garbage. Like you just got something wrong. Well, that's, that's part of the process. That is not unusual. Um, and this is, so we talked about doing some AI stuff and that the translation stuff, I don't know if we were, we talked about that during the recording or not, but that LeanPub can do AI translations to other languages. I haven't played with this feature yet, but um, when people are, are, you know, they're trying to figure out chat GPT and other things now and, and all this sort of writing is one of the reasons that we write is to figure out what we should say. We don't write what we think we should say. We write to, to, to put into concrete terms the things that we're thinking that we, that we think we understand, but have never had to express to somebody else. And it's, it's that expression which makes us wrestle with the ideas to the point where we find out if they're true or not. So I had this experience quite a bit because some of my books are tutorial books. Like one of the books on uh, LeanPub is Learning Pearl Exercises. And all it is is additional exercises for the book Learning Pearl. And you do the exercises, don't do the exercises, but you often think that you understand what I just told you until you try to do it yourself. Like, oh yeah, that, that programming concept makes perfect sense. And then you try to you try it on a simple problem and it doesn't make any sense. Well, the writing part, and I wish more people would write blogs or whatever, and I don't care if you're a good writer, um, you know, if you have, you know, perfect uh grammar and all that, but watching people play with ideas and get to the point where and I've I've done this often, is I'll write a blog post and it takes me about a day to write, say like eight hundred words like that I'm satisfied with, which is not unusual. Like Randall Schwartz always told me a page a day, 300 page book, 300 days. That's, you know, we talked about that 18 month lead up till public publication. You know, it's like they used to say, what is it like a programmer can write like five perfect lines of code a day or something like that. Um, but you, you have to struggle with the idea and you have to just get used to the idea that part of the process is not you're not wasting your time producing writing that never gets read by anyone. It's part of the process to say, oh, going through this process has made me understand this a lot better. And now I can go back, start over with a better understanding and come up with something really, really good. Um, I ran a magazine for a while called the Pearl Review, and that's sort of still the name of my company. Um, I don't know if it's three or four years. It was something, but I just, I wish I had, train the writers better at that sort of aspect that it's not you write something you turn it in and then um i just publish it because you can do that with blogs you can just take your first pass at anything put it on some website somewhere and people can read it what i really wanted to do is sort of train people to write about technology and figure out what do i know about this what do i think i know about this how can i explain it to other people um and again i mean i, I keep coming back to randall schwartz because he was really my my writing mentor uh, he would say frequently, and I, I think he's, he's being a bit harder on himself. He, he would say, I can't teach anyone how to program because I don't know how I program. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he does. And I think he's pretty good at explaining it, but he would say, you know, like, can Barry Bonds teach you how to hit a home run? Like this, he might've known how to hit a home run before, but now it just happens. Well, back then, I mean, this is a while ago. Barry Bonds was a, anyway, we won't get um, but he hit a lot of home runs. Can anyone who is 
has spent that much time thinking about something, actually then break it back down to figure out what they did. Writing is a sort of thing that gives you that ability. You think you know what you're doing in programming, and you start writing about it and try, try to explain it to somebody, and you're like, oh, I, I really made a mistake. I think this is one of the reasons people don't like to write comments in, in code, um, because they they start they realize that writing those means they're probably going to rewrite a lot of stuff because they're like, oh, I, you know, I was writing this comment and now I have this other idea, but I really have to get this thing done. You know, I have an hour. Uh, I don't know. That's just something that's in my mind that is completely unproven. There's no data on that. Uh, again, we keep talking about there's there's all this wasted wasted mm-hmm. time. There's, I was doing air quotes if you're just listening to the audio. Mm-hmm. Um, where you you think you have done something that hasn't been productive, but what it but a lot of that is just part of the process. It is productive. It's just you didn't account for those resources that you would have to use up. Yeah, no, I'm 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 totally with you. It's uh, it's it's really interesting. Um, uh, writing writing a really good a really good how to book. Um, but uh, like, and particularly about programming, like that, well, like I said before about the book that won't open if there's one typo in it kind of thing. Um, some of the, I've, I've had, I've had a few people on the podcast for whom like, they're like experts in like Python or, or, or functional programming or something like that. And they're like, but actually writing the book, going through it step by step, the hardest part is the, is the discipline. That's one of the things that you, you reminded yeah. me of there of like rewrite, no, no, rewrite it. Rewrite it again, rewrite it again, rewrite it again. Um, a kind of a version of that um, that that sort of I've encountered is um, uh, help center documentation, where mm-hmm. like you really want to just improve this explanation over here in this article, and then you're like, oh shit, that means there's 20 other articles. Yeah, yeah. if I'm going to if I'm going to apply that level of rigor here, then like you know there's like if I'm really going to stick to it and like make it all make sense internally, then I'm going to have to go rewrite like sort of 20 other things. And I imagine that's kind of analogous to, to programming where you're like, Oh, but if I start adopting this technique over here, why didn't I use it all in all those other places? Yeah, that's, yeah, I understand why some people can't do that. I mean, there's, I know the pressures of, of the work environment and all that, but Oh man, it just, it just kills. One of the, the really interesting things about being an artist, and I've been trying to come up with a definition of what an artist is, and I've been, you know, thinking about this for a couple of years. Um, there, there's people who can produce things, and we can look at them, and we can call them art, and that's fine. Um, I don't really have any problem with that. It's, it's. I'm not looking at it from from that angle, but I think the true artistic mindset is one where they they have to put the world in a certain order according to what they think in their mind, and they're not going to stop until it gets there. Now, that doesn't mean that they produce great art. That means they achieve their goal. They put the world in some sort of order. Like, say a sculptor has this vision in their mind of of what this thing should look like, and they finally produce that. Um, That's... The same sort of way I sort of think about writing, and I can't always quite get there. That's that's really interesting. That sort of compulsion to get things in in the right order, or or or, or something. Um, that yeah, it strikes a nerve with me because um, I I'm like that with sort of 
formulating articulations of ideas. Like I'll just keep going at it until I get it right. And then there's that moment where you, where you get it. Um, uh, and it's kind of like, yeah, like now, now think now, now the world's, it's like, it's like the world's in order now. I, I, yes, I did that, you know, like there was something, there was something like, and it's, it's not just, it's not just about you. It has to be in the world too. That's where the sort of articulation of it comes from. I came up with one the other day about, um, the kind of person who speaks and thinks as though, uh, other people's goalposts are going to move in whatever direction they decide oh, to kick yeah. the ball. And it's, oh, yes, that's, that's the, that's what that problem is that I've seen people having all the time, right? Is like, you know, they, they, they sort of think that if they give you a certain answer to a question that answers their issue with it, then, you know, the issue is done with or something like that. Um, uh, and it's like, no, <laughs> the other person's goalposts remain firmly where they were. So that was that idea of, um, the hundred monkeys and I forget what, and that book might've just been called the hundred monkeys. I forget what it was, but the idea was that once a hundred monkeys knew the idea, it was universal and every monkey under, I mean, they're talking about humans, but, mm -hmm. um, and I think in technology, we, we fall prey to that quite a bit. Like once we understand it and once sort of say our, the small group of people around us understand it, we just think everyone understands right. it. But no, but everyone who who is becoming a programmer or, or not even becoming a programmer, just, you know, using programming as a tool for their own means is going to go through the same process mm -hmm. that that we had to go through to figure this out. And we should accept the process. So I'll talk very briefly about another area of my life. Um, I do quite a bit of uh, disaster response work. So I used to be in the military. I'm not anymore. I kind of missed it. I kind of miss the danger and the immediacy of the problems. And so I will go to places with an organization. I'm not just doing this on my own and, and respond to hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, whatever. And in this organization, I, I do quite a bit of chainsaw work and I'm one of the top chainsaw instructors. We, I have to let them make all the same mistakes that I made and I have to engineer it. So they make those mistakes so that they know what that mistake is and they can figure out how to get out of it on their own. That sucks. As an instructor to sit there and watch someone make mistakes and just the eternity of, of you as the instructor watching them or, or you as the instructor recognizing the problem and then getting the resolution when you can't do it yourself uh, is something you just have to expect and you have to get used to. Uh, as a, and a as a writer, you have to appreciate this too. Um, one of my mentors in the army gave me this great advice. He said that that leadership is the ability to watch other people do your job worse than you could. So you're you know that you could do it better. You have more experience. You've done it more, whatever. But you have to give them the chance to do it poorly because I mean that's how you learned as well. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, the that that urge to jump in, um, and do it yourself just to get the thing done. And you, what you, but you're mistaking, and that's the, the difference between doing it and being a leader is like trying to get to the to the right outcome, but having a high level understanding of like what's happening now is this person is learning, right? Yeah, the primary thing right now is for this person to learn, or at least there's it's got a heavier weight than it might in other circumstances, right? Like if the if it was life or death you know, you'd, you'd probably jump in, right? Like in that moment. But if it's a learning moment, 
you know, then you just kind of have to, and I, I've often wondered about this with, um, uh, surger surgeons, basically like, what's it like to be a better surgeon than the person that you're training and just watch them like do bad sutures or something like that. Like, do you, where, anyway, that's a totally random kind of digression. So, so this is, this, this is, this is funny. I had a surgery a couple years ago and when I came out of anesthesia, I know, I knew that it had failed because just of the way people were acting. And so I, I had asked the, the attending doctor before who was actually going to do the surgery. And cause there were going to be, um, I, I always mess up the medical. I don't know residents interns. I don't know which one is, is more advanced. Um, you know, at some point they have to learn. So, you know, at some point they're going to do it. Um, and the answer is, you know, with these, with these guys is always, oh, I mean, there's always going to, I'm always going to be in the room. I'm like, at, at some point you want to have the best guy, but you're going to quickly run out of best guys if the next generation never gets a chance to practice. And, you know, sometimes you're the guy who gets practiced on. Uh, I was going to say something else about that, but I've, oh, there's so many things that are interesting about this. Um, yeah, well, one of the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, um, I think we talked earlier about lectures being this medieval concept. And this is one of the things I worry about with automation. Like I, I was reading some article today that they're going to try to, to automate tutoring. So, you know, your kid needs a math tutor and they're going to sign on to something like, um, Khan Academy or whatever. And. And I was actually watching a an eight-year-old do this last week. She was doing her math homework on Khan Academy. And, you know, it was fine. But I don't think people realize it robs the other side of their uh, opportunity to figure out things at a deeper level by explaining it to somebody else. So this is part of being an author is that you're... Uh, uh, there's some role in society where you are the person who's going to do the deep dive into this and you're going to figure out all the different things and you're going to put it in a book. And, and by the way, writing is one of the most amazing inventions in human history. That, that not the act of writing, that the fact that we have made words, you know, so, so groups of things that we can recognize in a visual medium and, and represent ideas like that and have it so it's just persistent. Like, you know, there's graffiti on the pyramids from the Italians who were there in, you know, 1835. It's still there. Uh, and then someone can just run a, find that and they can understand it because they can decipher these, these visual things. Uh, and they, they know it's something. They know something they didn't know before just by looking at something that, that isn't the idea itself. And if we don't ever allow or, or venture out on our own, to be the originating side of that, we are robbing ourselves of the opportunity to understand things at a deep level. So I, I don't really mind that like copywriters or, or other people are, are using AI to generate text. Um, it might be appropriate, but if you are using it to avoid knowing how to write, you're, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to understand more and to be able to explain things and pass on what you know in your experience and the way you thought about something to someone else. One of the things I talked about in Learning Pearl is, is you shouldn't read my book and then just say, this is the way that Brian does it. And so this is the way we should do it. I say, no, read my book, 
say, okay, this is one of the ways that I have learned to do this because Brian has, has written about this, but here, go read another book. And oh, this person has a different perspective on this. Um, and you know, the idea of master was, was that you worked as a journeyman for a while, you learned your trade and then you got sort of kicked out and you had to go work for somebody else and learn something else. And you got kicked out of that and you went to work with somebody else and learned that and then produce a masterpiece, which all of these people, these masters would have to look at and say, yes, you have developed your own style, your own way of doing things, synthesizing all these disparate ideas that were sort of spread out. And now you can go off and do your own thing. Um, I hope we don't lose that in the AI stuff. I, I, I'm not very apocalyptic about it. I'm, I'm not that down on it. We're going to figure out in some way because the people who do their own writing, who practice their own writing, who publish, even if they don't think it's good enough. And like we were talking about before, it's you as the author, you are never going to think it's good enough. The audience isn't going to care as much as you. Um, just get it out there, get used to it. This is the life of an author. Don't, don't let computers automate that opportunity away from you, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's 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 a lot to talk about there. The um the uh particularly the um conundrum of the potential kind of AI tutor, for example. So my experience, like I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of the of the good lecture. Um uh I think it's it's the one of the reasons it's persisted for millennia is that it's actually like an amazing format in it in itself that's kind of can't be replaced, right? And like one of the things is that if a good lecturer, first of all, they, they have to be good at it, right? They're not they can't be just reading reading like a yeah or something like that right but they could they're they kind of a performer like they can sort of like mm -hmm. you know, they can see they can sense what the crowd is interested in or not interested in they know what paths to go down stuff like that one of the best things about a really good i'm thinking specifically about a university lecture but there used to be you know people would give public lectures that sort of happens to some extent today as well um is the is the question and answer thing that happens at the end um that's that's often the best part of any talk right is because then like someone in the audience might ask a question that the expert has never really thought about quite in that way before and then they can have a back and forth and things like that but particularly if you're a student having an actual teacher who you can surprise who is all one of those kids you know what i mean like that ai tutors might get there someday but they never they never will kind of almost by definition when it comes to cutting edge stuff um, uh, and so when it, like, you know, sort of, for, for example, if someone's learning their ABCs, you know, it could, it could be that, you know, an, an AI tutors that might be better than a lot of teachers out there because they don't get tired or they don't get impatient or they're not racist or something like that. But, um, uh, but yeah, that idea of like, you know, sort of automating teaching just kind of that really, that really sort of rubs me the wrong way because the, 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 the idea that we'll ever get to a level where like AI, can, well, I shouldn't say that, but you know, um, where, where certain types of things are going to be possible, just doesn't seem likely to me. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm probably with you, like sort of temperamentally when it comes to what it sounds like you're saying about AI, like it's, it's here, it's here to stay. Let's make, let's try and make good use of it, but let's also be, be sort of careful that we don't. Um, and this is, this is just a problem with any kind of new technology, right? Is like, you know, why are people having sex the old fashioned way when they could just <laughs> would do it on Twitter, you know, like now. And it's like, well, there's reasons. Um, uh, and, uh, anyway, that's, that's, but like, you know, but with any new technology, they're like, oh, we've got a new way of doing it. Well, that's gotta be better. 
and it's like actually not not it's it take the opportunity to reflect on the fact that the way we used to do things some of it was just convention some of it was just inertia but some of it actually might have been because there was an in itselfness to the way we were doing yeah that that just can't just literally can't be replaced by anything else have we gotten to all the things that you wanted to talk about? Because you said that we we sort of skipped to the end of the interview, and I wonder what the middle was. So, so um, uh, the the middle would have been to talk about your book, um, uh, uh, but but um, uh, I, when I was preparing for this interview, I mean, you've done you've got so much. I mean, and I'm just saying this in the interest of us having reached feature length here, but uh, which is great, by the way, and my favorite kind of interview. But um, you've got so many you've got so many resources that you've written out there. Um, I was looking at some, like, uh, uh, what was this, uh, podcast episode that you did with, um, oh, the IEE computer society podcast or something like that. You've just got so many great resources, but if you could maybe just take five minutes to talk about, uh, where your book, uh, Pearl new features came from, uh, and, and who it's, oh, sure. who it's for, uh, then, then we could just sort of close out the interview that way. Yeah. So there, there are three great books in Pearl and sadly I didn't write any of them. Um, one was the original Effective Pro Programming by Joseph Hall. And Joseph Hall was was instrumental in Stonehenge Consulting with Randall Schwartz, too. Um, so he wrote this book that was just these bite-sized, one or two-page um, discussions of a like, particular like esoteric or maybe sometimes not esoteric Pearl feature. Very nice book. Um, an- another one is Higher Order Pearl by uh, Mark Jason Dominus, which you can get for free from his website. Um, basically, he looks at the idea that Perl satisfies all of Norvig's conditions for being a functional programming language. Um, if you think that's contentious, go read his book and then come back and we'll talk about it. And, oh shoot, now I'm forgetting what the what I said the third book was. Um, it definitely wasn't one of mine. It, it was probably one of Damian Conway's. Uh, at one of the conferences, say around 2010-ish, I think, uh, one of my friends, Josh McAdams, had a uh, was approached by Addison Wesley to update Effective Pearl programming, and then he he sort of roped me in, and so we put out the second edition. And there's I forget how many items we have in there, but uh, I finished that book, and there was really no way to keep updating that. I mean, there had been ten or more years between editions there, and it wasn't a big seller to start with. And I didn't think Addison Wesley was was really that interested in and spending time and all these resources to, to put out a, a continuing one. So I was, I was running this blog and as for the book, again, doing that marketing stuff that I hate. I mean, my blog is very ugly. I, I, I should just pay someone to do it, but I mean, that's just another thing on the to-do list. Uh, I, I would add new things as new versions of Pearl came out. I would try the new features and I would write about what I thought about them and, and how I thought they could be used and what sort of problems they could solve. And this went on for several years. And then I think, I think this was my first lean pub book as I just pulled a lot of that together, put it in an EPUB and put it on lean pub. I'm pretty sure that was my first. And, you know, I was surprised like, wow, people bought this. I mean, it's for free on the website, but, there was some value in having it all packaged in this tiny little thing that people could have on their reader on a plane or in the tunnel or, you know, wherever they were. 
So I, you know, I live in New York City and I'm on the subway quite a bit and you know, there's no internet down there and I'm glad there's no internet down there. Uh, but I wish I could look at stuff that I wanted to read all at once. Anyway, so then I, and LeanPub gave me the ability to update this book. So when a new Pearl came out, I started adding stuff to the book. And then as each Pearl has come out, and you know, I think this is four or five years now, I've just updated it for the next version of Pearl and, and spent some time to think about these features, try them out, you know, what do I think? And, and, and so on. And, and that's sort of how that book came about. And what I should do is sort of now backport some of that stuff to the website so that, you know, people can see this stuff from like, say a year ago, get the current stuff on LeanPub, but if you want to wait a year, which is a long time in the internet, um, you can see it for free. Uh, and I've been really happy with that. It's, I wish I were more disciplined. I'm always wish I were more disciplined. Um, like I said, this last one, I waited like a year because I wanted all the next update to be complete. And I think I should just do what I'm supposed to do with LeanBub and say, you know, every month here is whatever I got. And if you have feedback because you see I have left notes saying this is incomplete, I'm thinking about this, yeah, just send it to me, I'll incorporate it into the next month's release. Um, no, I thought about that in July and now it's, we're like halfway through the month practically. And they haven't done anything. I know. Um, I know that the writers, the writers complain. <laughs> um, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast, if the guest is a LeanPub author, is um, if there was one thing that when you're using LeanPub has you just shaking your fist at it, going "Damn you, LeanPub!" that we could fix for you, <laughs> or if there was one feature we could build for you that you'd love for us to have, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? There, there is, and this is stupid, and um, it. It just sounds like I can't use computers, but I always get lost in the menus. So there is, there's, I know I, I have notes and if I look at my notes, I can go to the author and I can choose my book and I can get to my book and then I can figure out where the coupon code is or whatever. But there are just so many options there and the menus sort of combine my role as a reader with my role as an author. And I would sort of wish that those were two completely separate menus. It's not a big deal. I wouldn't spend any time on it because again, I have my notes and I only have to do this like once a month, but it's something I always get tripped up on. Um, I know that's, that might not be the sort of feedback you're no, asking for, but. No, no, that, thanks very much for that. You're not the first person to say it. You, you sort of, I actually, I did a book launch video with someone yesterday who said the exact same thing. Except they they didn't do what you did, which was you took the words out of my mouth, which said the problem is that it com conflates our UI sort of in the design conflates the role of reader with the role of author, or at least doesn't doesn't distinguish them properly. So we we have two two people using two types of users, as it were, right? The people yeah. who go to LeanPub to find books and buy them, and then there's people who go to LeanPub to write books and sell them, um, and mm -hmm. keeping. Providing a single design that sort of meets both those needs has just been a longstanding challenge of ours, and we're always iterating on it. And we always really like the to hear like we we like to hear that people are having the problem, like to have them tell us because it sort of gives us more incentive to sort of make it better. We do have and and one thing I mentioned to the author I was speaking to yesterday for that book launch video, but was we actually do have a kind of like tour, a little tour kind of walkthrough in our help center that actually like kind of like. That's the, instead of taking your own notes, that's the place people should go, but nobody knows about it because we haven't, we haven't, we don't put it in the right place. Right. So I'm actually just like yesterday, I was thinking, what are, what are better places that I could put the little tour so that for authors, mm -hmm. 
um, specifically so that they could, they don't have to do what you do. I think I actually went through the tour, but then, you know, I, a month later, I don't remember anything, yeah. you know, but I, but I, but I, but I have one more thing and this is a very picky thing and it's a, it's a business sort of thing. And I'm not going to say any names here, but so I'm in the U S and the way that I get paid is through a particular channel, which is not going directly to my bank. Um, and you can, you can even cut this out of the interview if you want. Um, I would really, I mean, I know there's reasons that you don't want to interact with the U S banking system. Um, but as a person getting paid, I don't really care. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? I, I do. And we actually have, we have, uh, we introduced a new payment alternative, yeah. uh, a while ago called wise. Um, and if you sign up for wise, the money, the payment from LeanPub goes directly to your bank account. Oh, okay. I'll have to look at that. Yeah. Wise.com. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. And, and if you have any questions or anything, please feel free to reach out to me by email or whatever. And I'm happy to answer the question because okay. other people will have those same questions and then I can write a help center article about it or something like that. But no, no, no. Yeah. If you, if you sign up, if you have, basically what happens is wise is this like very, very good payments company. Basically, I think they're technically a bank. And so oh, what good. you can do is you can tie your bank account to them and then you just give us your wise email address and we can, we can send you payments that go directly to your bank account. Yeah. And it's, but, it's really, it's really good, not only for that, but also for saving on like, um, payments fees and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and but I want to also say these are very small complaints versus, you know, an 80% royalty over a 10% royalty. I mean, I, I don't have major complaints, but, but there was a question I had for you. Um, so you guys are in British Columbia, right? Yep. So you're... You're a Canadian company who's running a large portion of my business. There's another company I use called, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but that does my payroll. That's also a Canadian company. And I just was sort of tickled today when I was thinking about this, that like, yeah, most of the way I flow money around my business happens through Canada. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, that, and, and both of the websites are very, very good. I, I have these small complaints about your menu, but everything else is really, really easy. And this, this payroll processor is really, really easy. Like, and I've used all sorts of things. I've used ADP. I've used all sorts of things to run my business. And no, it's, it's these little companies in Canada, which seem to be quietly just making everyday sort of software that just solves boring problems for people. I don't know if that's a, it's a if that's the trend. If you guys are going to silently take over the world, or, or what the deal is. Uh, yeah, I don't know either, but I'll have to think about it. But that's a very positive note to end on. Thank you very much for that. And and Brian, yeah, thank you very much today uh, for taking the time today to have this really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, my favorite kind of conversation. And I think I think our listeners are going to really like it too. Okay, thanks a lot, Lynn. and thanks, Lean Pub. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.